Well, a very popular children's story is the story of Peter Pan. And one of the things that children love about this story is that in Neverland, you never have to grow up. Uh, in Neverland, you can stay like a kid. You can act like a kid your whole life. You never have to mature. You never have to do the things that adults do. And when you're a kid, that's an appealing story because kids oftentimes, you know, they don't want to have to grow up and mature. They don't want to have to be responsible and do chores and, and do the things that, you know, the adults have to do. They just kind of want to play all day and have no responsibilities. You know, I am the youngest of my siblings, and I remember my brother and sister, you know, often being upset because there were chores that they had to do that I didn't. There were responsibilities that they had that I didn't because I was younger than them. And they would often ask, you know, why doesn't Matthew have to do this? And, and typically the answer was, you know, he's the baby or he's the youngest or, you know, my age was one of the reasons why I wasn't given those responsibilities. And I tried to milk that for as long as possible because, you know, there's some things about being the youngest that aren't good, but that's one of the ones that was good. You know, I like the fact that I could, you know, not have to act mature, not have to have the responsibilities, not have to do, you know, the chores and things that my brother and sister did. Now, I bring this up because as Christians, there are many people who suffer from a Peter Pan spirituality. They do not want to grow up and mature spiritually. They don't want the responsibilities they don't want the obedience to God. They don't want the things that spiritual maturity requires. And so they just want to live in a spiritual neverland where they don't have to spiritually grow up. And you know, as we've been looking at the, the Hebrew believers that are the initial recipients of this letter to the Hebrews, that's kind of really one of the problems that they had. They were not maturing spiritually the way that they should have been. And actually, as we saw the last time we were in the book of Hebrews, they were declining spiritually. They were going from spiritually mature to spiritually immature. And so the author shares a very important warning for them, which starts in chapter 5, verse 11, and goes all the way to chapter 6, verse 18. And that warning is, don't decline spiritually. And the last time we were in Hebrews, the author started this warning with three reasons why these Hebrew believers were declining spiritually. Three reasons that kind of showed the problem for why this warning was given in the first place. The first reason was because they were dull of hearing, lazy, and hard-hearted toward the Word of God. The second reason was because they were not... they were not teaching God's Word to others because they were not investing in God's Word themselves. And the third reason was because they went back to a baby diet of milk and neglected the meat of God's Word, which caused them to be unskilled and unexercised in God's Word. Now, those three reasons are just the start of this warning, just kind of laying out what the problem is. And now, as we come to chapter 6, the author is going to continue with this warning and share some more things for us. And I believe these first three verses that we're going to look at here in chapter 6 are just very relevant for us today, that the Lord has something that is important and timely to challenge us with today. And we're going to see three things the author shares of, you know, if you want to grow in maturity, if you want to go from spiritual immaturity to spiritual maturity, there's three things that really need to happen. And no matter what stage you're in in your Christian life, you need to recognize all of us should be saying, I want to mature. We should never say, you know what, I've kind of arrived spiritually. I don't need any more maturity spiritually. You know, I'm where I need to be. And, you know, all of us should have this desire for more growth. And so these three things are going to be very relatable and applicable to each one of us. Now, something important to note here is verse 1 of chapter 6 starts with the word, therefore. And that means that the author is connecting what he just said at the end of chapter 5 with what he's about to say here at the beginning of chapter 6. 
And you remember at the end of chapter 5, he was talking about the spiritual decline that the Hebrews had. And the problem with this is whenever you see a chapter break, you kind of typically think, well, all right, there's a new thought. Things have changed. You know, so we just kind of pause. We take a break. We go, okay, well, well, the chapter stopped, so I should as well. But we need to remember chapter and verses are not inspired by God. You know, people put them into the Word of God so that we could quickly find verses to make it easily accessible. And these scholars, you know, they attempted to the best of their ability to say, you know what, let's try to make chapter breaks where the thought changes, where the author finishes one thing and starts another thing. But there are occasions when they don't do a very good job, and this is one of those occasions. They shouldn't have stopped chapter 5 right where they did. Because the thought continues on to the beginning of chapter 6. He hasn't changed his point. He hasn't changed what he's saying. You're going to see that he's going to connect in these first three verses things that he just said at the end of chapter 5. And so don't think like, oh, there's this break and we just stop. No, there's a continuation to what he has just told us. uh, And we're going to see that continuation this morning. And so what I want to do is I just want to start by reading the last few verses of chapter 5 that we looked at last time and then reading the first three verses of chapter 6 just to remind you of the context, what the author has just said, and now what he is challenging us to do in light of what he just said. So Hebrews chapter 5 verse 11 says this, of whom we have much to say and hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But solid food belongs to those who are full of age. That is, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. And now we start what we're going to look at this morning. Therefore, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, let us go on to perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God and of the doctrines of baptisms, of laying out of hands, of resurrection from the dead and of eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. So the author starts this warning at the end of chapter 5 by telling the Hebrews what they were like right then. Here is your guys' problem. This is what you are like. Here is why I'm bringing this warning to you. You're dull of hearing. You need someone to teach you again. The first principles of the oracles of God. You know, you need milk, not solid food, because you're spiritually immature. And because of that, you're unskilled and unexercised in the Word of God. And so this warning starts with their problem of spiritual immaturity, and then it jumps straight into the solution, or at least one of the solutions, to this problem. All right, here's your issue, and now I want to tell you what to do to correct the issue of spiritual immaturity. And so therefore, this connecting the problem with the solution. Since you have these different problems related to your spiritual immaturity, therefore the solution to your problem is you need to leave the discussion of the elementary principles of God, you need to go on to perfection, and you need to not lay again the foundation of six different things that we'll be looking at this morning. So the author is telling him, hey, that there's three things that you ultimately need to do if you want to fix this problem of being spiritually immature and get to a place of spiritual maturity. And these things are are things that you and I need to do as well. If we feel like, you know what, I'm in a place of spiritual immaturity or I would just like to become more mature, these are three things that as we look at to say, hey, these are things that I want to do, I want to put into practice so that I can grow into maturity. The first thing the author tells us they needed to do is they need to leave the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ. Now this Greek word here translated leaving means to send from oneself, to put away, let alone, disregard, to put off. Now the thing that the author is telling these Hebrew believers to, to leave, to, to let alone, to put off, is the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ. 
Now this phrase, the elementary principles of Christ, it actually it comes from the exact same phrase that the author just used in chapter 5, verse 12, when he says, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God. The elementary principles and the first principles are the exact same word. They just translated it a little bit differently, but it's speaking of the exact same thing. So there's this complete connection with what he just said to what he's about to say. And um, if you remember, these, you know, the, the, the meaning of this is the basic starting and foundational principles. So if this Greek word was used in spelling, it would be referring to the ABCs. You know, that's where the foundation is. You know, that's where the basic stuff is. Before we get into anything else, you got to know your ABCs before we can learn these words and everything that goes with it. And so the author is saying, if you want to spiritually grow, the first thing you need to do is leave the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ. You need to leave the discussion of the basic things of Christianity. Now, the author is not saying that these basic foundational principles are bad. He's not saying that these basic foundational principles are not things that people shouldn't learn and know. That's not the point at all. These are essential. These are great. The problem is that these believers haven't gone beyond that. They've been saved for quite a long time now, and so this should have been something in the first few years of, of their salvation that they were you know, grounded in and understood, and they should have moved beyond these foundational things, but they haven't. And that's the problem. That's the, the rebuke that the author is bringing. Because once they know these basic foundational principles, they shouldn't just stay discussing those things. They should move on to discussions that are far deeper. Move on to discussions about things in the Word of God that are deeper than the basic things. Now at the end of chapter 5, the author used this picture of what a child eats versus what an adult eats. You know, the child, it just drinks milk. It's not capable of anything more when it's a baby, and then as it grows and matures, it gets to a place where it's an adult, and it eats solid Food And so there's this illustration that the author is giving to show, hey, you Hebrews, you're drinking milk. You're like spiritual babies, and you should be in a place where you're drinking solid food. That's where mature Christians are at. Well, he's going to continue on with that picture of what a child does versus what an adult does. But the analogy is going to move from what you eat to what you discuss. You see, a conversation that you have with a child is very different than a conversation that you would have with an adult. And a conversation that two children would have with one another is different than a conversation that two adults would have with one another. You know, with a child, you usually just discuss basic things because, you know, for the most part, that's all that they can understand and take on. And so you don't want to speak things that are just going to go over their head. But with an adult, you can discuss things oftentimes that are much deeper. You can discuss things that are more mature because the adult can handle that and continue to understand what you're speaking about. You see, with a child, you might talk about the ABCs, maybe even sing the ABC song, but there are certain words and conversations that you wouldn't have with them because you know, hey, if I use this word, they won't know the meaning. It'll go over their head. This conversation will not have any benefit for them. But with an adult, you can use big words. You can use deep meanings. You can have deep discussions, and you guys can understand each other because there's a maturity in that discussion that's there. You see, you can often tell the maturity of a person based on the things that they discuss and the things that they are capable of discussing. You know, if you only talk about movies and games and you never really talk about much else, much deeper things, much more meaningful things, then people would look and say, you know what, that's someone who's immature in their discussions. Now, we expect that from someone who's a kid. We expect that even from people who are teenagers. But, you know, you get in your 20s and your 30s, and if all you still talk about are movies and games, if all that you really occupy your, your thoughts are those things, and you never really get to conversations and discussions that are deeper and more meaningful about life and, and purpose and things of that nature, then people would just say, man, you need to grow up. You need to start talking about things that matter. 
you know, that's great that you, you, know, you love these games, but you know, you're, you're 30 years old. It's time to, to get a life in that regard. And that's ultimately what the author of Hebrews is saying to these Hebrew believers spiritually. You know, guys, your discussion is still like a child. You're just discussing the basic stuff, and you need to start to grow up and spiritually mature and have conversations that have some depth of meaning to them that focus on more than just the basics of the Bible that look at some of these principles that are much more uh, deep and and look at life and marriage and and these things that are very important to understand. you got to move on to a deeper discussion. So one of the things that these believers needed to do was take that transition. Okay, you know, these basic things are great to know, they're great to talk about, but at this time, that the discussion, it's time that the conversation starts to go beyond this. And I think this is such a, a true thing for you and I as well. And so the first thing that we should do, if we want to spiritually mature, is we need to move beyond the discussion of the basic foundational principles of Christianity to deeper things. That's for each of us. You have to think about, you know, what is it that I talk about, especially obviously with other believers? You know, how deep do I go? And I need to move beyond just the basics. And I got to go to something deeper. And I think one of the best ways for us to do that, one of the best ways to take our conversations from, you know, basic things to more deep spiritual things is to make sure you have people who are more spiritually mature than you in your life, regularly having conversations with you. you got to have people in your life that are going to challenge you to go deeper because they are deeper in their relationship with God than you are. They are more mature in their relationship with God than you are. And so when you have conversations with them, they bring that conversation to a depth of maturity that challenges you to go with them and helps you to leave the basics and go deeper. I think one of the problems we have in the church today is that oftentimes the younger people don't have deeper conversations with the older people who are more mature in their relationship with the Lord. You know, we have a tendency just to want to hang out with our peers. Typically, we we don't have the same desire to say, you know what, I want to go hang out with someone a lot older or I want to go hang out with someone a lot younger. It's just kind of like, I'll just stay within my peer group. And in doing so, we rob ourselves of spiritual growth. You know, the Bible tells older and more mature women that they should teach and invest in and help the younger women who are less mature to learn and grow, learn how to be wives and moms, learn how to live the Christian life. It says the same things about older, mature men. You need to come alongside the younger, immature men, learn and teach them how to be godly men, godly husbands, godly fathers. The only way that's going to happen is if both young and old start to have those deep conversations, start to really get together to talk about meaningful, purposeful things. And this is something that we want to see in our women's Bible study, our men's Bible study, our home group. You know, on a Sunday morning, we really don't have the same kind of time, at least during the the teaching time. Afterwards, we have a good time to be able to fellowship in this way. But you know what? The the women's ministry, men's ministry, Bible study, home group, they're more designed to say, you know what? Let's have the older, more mature investing in the younger. Let's have people sharing and encouraging one another. Let's be doing more of this so that we can help each other to deepen these conversations so that we can mature more. And so I just want to give an encouragement. If you're a younger person in our church, I want to encourage you to find some older, more spiritually mature people and that you would really seek to actually have meaningful, deep conversations with them as you encounter them at different church events or personally just invite them to come and meet you for a coffee You know, that you would say, you know what, I value the wisdom that you have. I value the experience of life that you have. And I want to grow and I want to learn. And I realize if all I have is the voices of my peers, I'm missing out on a depth and a wealth of wisdom and knowledge that I'm not going to get from the people who are my age because they are just as ignorant as me in a lot of these things. And, And I would say if you are older, make the time to invest in the younger. Recognize, you know what, I want to share 
all these things that the Lord has taught me, all that I've learned, and it's not always all that I've learned because I've done it all the right way. A lot of what I've learned is because I failed, and I want to help you not to fail in the way that I failed, but I have so much to offer, and so I want to come alongside and have the heart to do that. And as I've talked with people over the years, because I think this is a big problem in the church, one of the things that I often hear from people say to me is, you know what, we, we can't do this because we've got nothing in common. You know, that's the typical thing that people are saying. And there's a part of that where I agree with, yeah, you don't probably have the same movies in common, the same hobbies in common, you know, the same music in common. Yeah, I get that. But that's not what we're talking about here. You know, I'm not talking about, let's go, why don't you go hang out and talk about the latest movie and discuss it? You know, how is that going to benefit you? Or let's talk about music. No, I'm talking about you have something in common that's the most important thing of all. You have your relationship with God. You have the Word of God. You have, you know, these things that are the most important things of all that we say, yeah, well, we got that in common. We don't need to talk about the things that we don't have in common because those aren't really that important to begin with. Let's talk about what the Word of God says. You know, oh, you're, you're, you're a young married couple and I've been married for 40 years. Let me share with you some insights that I've learned. Let me share with you some things that would help you grow. And you know, we don't need to talk about music and movies and other stuff. We can talk about the meaningful things. And so if you're using that excuse of, oh, we don't have anything in common, well, you're lying to yourself because you definitely have what's most important in common. And so don't allow that to keep you from seeking out an older person or if you're older, seeking out a younger person and recognizing this is something God's Word tells us to do because we need it. And I think it's very lacking in the church and we're missing out on some growth because of it. So this first thing the author is wanting these Hebrew believers to do is to leave this discussion of just the elementary principles and to move on to deeper things. The second thing that the author tells the Hebrew believers to do is go on to perfection. Now, this Greek word translated go on is really a word of action. It means to move forward with force and speed. This word was most typically used uh, to refer to someone in an Olympic Games or some athlete who would be moving forward with force and speed in order to seek to win a race. And so this was a, hey, you're going to go on for victory. You know, you're not just moseying around hoping that you make it to the end. You're giving it your all, everything that you got, and you're doing it to win. That's what this, this word is. It's a, a descriptive, active word of really getting at it giving it your all. And notice what the author of Hebrews tells them to go on to. What are you moving forward in? What are you giving your all for? He says, go on to perfection. Now, I want to say that this is not a good translation. If you look, if you don't have the New King James or the King James, the majority of the other uh, versions will say maturity. Because that is what this Greek word means. It means to be fully developed, to be full grown, to come to maturity. You see, when we hear the word perfection, we think, well, i got to be perfect. Man, he's telling me to be perfect. Oh, man, I fall so short of that. No, that's not what he's saying at all. He's saying you need to go on. You need to pursue maturity, which completely fits in the context of everything he's saying. You guys are immature, and you need to give your all to moving to a place of maturity because you seem to just be completely content to have your Peter Pan spirituality and just sit back and not mature. And so you need to move. You need to put effort into moving forward to maturity. Charles Spurgeon wrote this, let us go from the school to the university. Let us have done with our first spelling books and advance into the higher classics of the kingdom. Children are to learn their letters in order that they may go on to higher branches of education, and believers are to know the elements of the faith, but are then to advance to the higher attainments and endeavor to understand the deeper mysteries. And that should be our heart. I, I want to continue to be someone who is growing and maturing, and I'm going to put the effort into doing it. And so the second thing the author is telling these Hebrew believers to do is to put their effort into moving forward to spiritual maturity. And for us this morning, this is a challenge for us. There's a practical thing that you and I, if we are wanting to move to maturity, we need to do as well. And so the second thing we need to do is we need to put our effort 
into moving forward towards spiritual maturity. You know, something that I think maybe you have discovered if you've been a Christian for any length of time is that spiritual maturity doesn't just happen by accident. It's not one of those things that I just wake up in the morning and I was immature when I went to bed and I woke up and I was spiritually mature. You know, there's a reality that if you want to grow in anything, it takes effort on your part. Now, I want, I want to make you clear that it's not that we rely upon our own strength and power, but there's a reality that, hey, you know what, there is effort on my part. You know, if I never put the effort into reading the Bible, guess what? It's not going to happen. If I never put the effort into having conversations that are deep with people, it's not going to happen. If I don't put the effort in coming out to church and to coming out to, you know, home groups and men's groups and women's groups, it's not going to happen. If I don't put the time and effort into these things, then I can just sit back and be like, man, I don't know why I'm not growing. Well, you're not growing because you're not willing to make it a priority enough that you actually put what's necessary into these things so that you will grow. And so if you're thinking, man, I want to mature spiritually, well, great. Start putting the effort into the things that are going to help you grow spiritually and watch what happens. So the first thing, you got to leave these basic discussions and move to deeper spiritual discussions. The second thing is you got to put more effort into moving forward to spiritual maturity And now we come to the third thing that the author tells the Hebrews to do. Don't lay again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God, of the doctrine of baptisms, of laying on of hands, of resurrection of the dead, and of eternal judgment. Notice here the author tells these Hebrew believers, don't lay again the foundation of these six different things, which we're going to look at in a moment. So these six things are things that these believers had a foundation in at some point in their life. And the author is saying, hey, don't lay again that foundation that you once had. And look look at the list of these six things. First, repentance from dead works, faith towards God, the doctrine of baptisms, laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. Now, I want to make you aware of the fact that there are several commentators and pastors who look at this list of six things, and they believe that these are six foundational principles for the Christian life. Actually, you can go into bookstores today, and there are literally books written of, hey, you want to be spiritually mature, here are six foundational principles of the Christian life, and they list these out, and they give kind of ways in which you can grow in them. And so what they believe the author is saying is, don't lay again these six foundational principles of the Christian life. But I personally do not believe that is what the author is saying. If you come to that conclusion, if you ask yourself the question, hey, you know, are these six foundational principles for the Christian life? I think you have to ask a couple more important questions. One is, what is distinctively Christian about this list? distinctively Christian. And I'm going to show you in a moment that none of these things are distinctively Christian. Where is the specific mention of Jesus? Where is the specific mention of the cross? Where is the specific mention of saved by grace alone? Uh, There's a glaring absence of Jesus, and I think that's a problem if these are truly the six foundational principles for the Christian life. Here's another question. Could a person believe in or practice these six things and still not be a follower of Jesus Christ? Still not believe that Jesus is their Messiah? And I will show you, yes, they definitely could practice these six things and still not believe in and follow Jesus, which once again makes me think, well, they can't be the foundational Christian principles if that's the case. Now, I think here's where we need to pause for a moment. Here's where we need to remember the context of this letter. Why was it written? Who was it written to? What's the problem that exists? This letter was written to Christians who have come out of Judaism. They were following all the customs of Judaism. They've come out of that into a place where they believe that Jesus is now their Messiah. And because they have placed their faith in Jesus and believe that Jesus is their Messiah, and they look to the cross for their salvation of sins, not to the sacrificial system of the temple because they believe in and preach Jesus and His sacrifice on the cross and His resurrection from the dead, something happened to them. 
Because they did that, they have suffered horrible persecution. And that persecution that they have suffered is because they have believed in Jesus and they have proclaimed Jesus to others. And because they've been suffering, there is this temptation within them to go back to Judaism. Now, remember, the reason they are being tempted to go back to Judaism is because what Judaism believes and what Judaism teaches, those things are not being persecuted. Because guess what? The main persecutors are Jews themselves. And they're not persecuting the things that they believe. They're not persecuting the things that they hold to. What are they persecuting? They're persecuting Jesus, the cross. They're persecuting the difference that you have between Judaism and Christianity. Jesus is an offense to them. The cross is an offense to them. And that is why the persecution has come to these Hebrew believers. And so the temptation is, you know what, if we just leave the offensive stuff, if we leave the offensive stuff about Jesus and we go back to these things of Judaism, the persecution will stop. The, the things that are coming against us will end. And so with that context in mind, I want you to consider something that I think is very important about these six things. All six of these things that are listed here are practiced in both Judaism and Christianity, but... Their foundation is in Judaism. You see, Judaism has the doctrine of repentance from dead works. Yeah, the sacrificial system is all about the fact that, hey, you know what? We need to repent and have sacrifices for our sins, but we can't do enough works to save ourselves. That's why we need to sacrifice these animals. That's why we need to atone for our sins. Isaiah says our, our works are like filthy rags, that they understood this very important doctrine of repentance from dead works. They also had the doctrine of faith towards God. I mean, the very first person, the start of the, the Hebrew nation is Abraham. His whole life was about faith. The Abrahamic covenant is all based on Abraham's faith in God. They, they, they understood and had the strong doctrine of faith towards God. They also had the doctrine of laying out of hands. Even more significant than our own laying on of hands that we do in Christianity. Because one, they laid hands like we do. Laying on, it was associated with commissioning someone to certain offices. God told Moses, I want you to lay hands on Joshua as you commission him to be the next leader of the nation of Israel. But you know what? There's an even greater aspect of laying on of hands. As a person would bring their sacrifice to the temple for their own sin. Part of that process was they had to lay their hands on the head of that animal. And this was symbolic, saying that my sins are being taken from me and placed on this animal, that he is the substitute for me, that he is dying in my place. The high priest would do that as well, place his hand on an animal for the whole nation's sin, saying, hey, we're transferring, this is the substitute for us. And so they definitely had this doctrine of laying on of hands. They had the doctrine of the resurrection from the dead. Daniel and Isaiah both clearly speak of this. If you remember in Jesus' day, you had two religious groups that were kind of uh, in charge. You had the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The Pharisees were the more conservative, that they believed everything that the Old Testament taught. The Sadducees kind of believed bits and pieces. And if you remember in that time, there was a big controversy about whether there was a resurrection. The Sadducees didn't believe it because they didn't believe what the Old Testament taught. The Pharisees said, no, there is a resurrection. They even bring it to Jesus. Well, the reality is, yes, there was a resurrection. The, the Sadducees got it wrong. The Pharisees got it right. But the Pharisees knew, yeah, it's taught. It's part of our doctrine. We understand this. Judaism has the doctrine of eternal judgment. Solomon wrote in Ecclesiastes, God's going to bring every act to eternal judgment. Now, the thing on this list that has caused people to believe that it is the foundation in Christianity versus the foundation in Judaism is the doctrine of baptisms. And that's where they say, well, there's where we got you. There's no doctrine of baptisms in, in Judaism. There are in Christianity. No, it's baptisms, plural. And so they'll say, well, there's you know, the baptism of where you're getting dunked. And then there's a you know, baptism of the Holy Spirit. And, and so they say, well, this is where it's clear that the author is speaking about Christianity not Judaism being the ultimate foundation of this. Now, the problem with that statement is the Greek word that's used. 
See, if you look throughout Scripture and you look at the Greek word used for baptisms associated with Christianity, associated with getting dunked, it's the Greek word baptizo, used all throughout the New Testament. But that's not the word that the author here uses. He uses a different word, the Greek word baptismos. It's actually only used four times in the Bible, twice in Hebrews and twice in the Gospel of Mark. And the other three times it's used, besides right here in Hebrews chapter 6, it's all used in the exact same way with the exact meaning of the Greek word, which is ceremonial washings. I'll read to you these other occurrences. Mark 7 and verse 4 and 8, we see it. It's bold on the screen. When they had come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other things which they receive and hold like the washings, that's the Greek word, of cups, pitchers, copper vessels, and couches. For the laying aside of the commandments of God, you hold the traditions of men, the washings, once again that Greek word, of pitchers and cups and many other such things. Hebrews 9, 10, concerning only with foods and drinks, various washings, same Greek word, and fleshly ordinance imposed until the time of Reformation. So the other three times it is used, it's translated the right way, in the right context. It's referring to the Jewish ceremonial washings, but someone had the idea of translating it baptisms in some of the versions. Other versions translate it washings correctly, and you get the right idea. Now, here's the thing that's important, because some people have made a conclusion, well, it must be talking about Christianity because there's no baptisms in Judaism, but they've missed the point that this isn't talking about baptisms, it's talking about ceremonial washings. The word that they're trying to use to prove the foundation is in Christianity actually proves the foundation is in Judaism, because guess what we don't have in Christianity? Ceremonial washings. That's something that's specifically Jewish. And so this list is more Jewish in its foundation than it would be in Christianity. And so, F.F. Bruce wrote this. When we consider the rudiments one by one, speaking of this list of six things, it is remarkable how little in the list is distinctive, distinctive of Christianity. For practically every item could have had its place in a fairly orthodox Jewish community. Each of them, indeed, acquires a new significance in a Christian context, but the impression we get is that existing Jewish beliefs and practices were used as a foundation on which to build Christian truth. So I believe it's clear that the author is not saying, hey, don't lay again these six foundational truths of Christianity, but instead, don't lay again these six things that you used to hold to foundational truths in Judaism. You see, all these believers came out of Judaism. They didn't come out of paganism. It wouldn't work if they came out of paganism, but they came out of Judaism, so they did have this foundation at one point in their life. And so notice the author says, don't lay this foundation again. Well, if it was Christian foundation, well, yeah, lay it again. It's important. <laughs> no, don't lay again this stuff. Don't rely on this stuff. Don't go back to this stuff, because that is what they were tempted to do. Now, I think another question we need to ask ourselves is, why would these believers want to lay these specific six things back into the foundation of their life. Because there's a lot of things in Judaism that's not on this list. What is it about these six things? Why would they choose these six things to want to go back to? And I believe the answer to that question is because these six things are the common ground in both Christianity and Judaism. I want you to picture Christianity as one circle and Judaism as another circle, as you see here on this slide. Now, some of the things that are found in Judaism, they're not found in Christianity. And some of the things that are found in Christianity are not found in Judaism. But Christianity and Judaism definitely share some certain doctrines that are the same. They're not like two separate circles that never meet. You know, it's not like paganism and Christianity that never meet. No, there's an overlap between these two. And I believe the important thing that we need to note here is that every one of these six things that are on this list would be found in that overlap. It would be in that middle ground where Christianity and Judaism come together. You see, these six things have their foundation in Judaism, but they have taken on a greater meaning and depth in Christianity. 
You know, in Christianity, we have repentance from dead works, but it's not the same as within Judaism, because in Judaism, they were looking to animal sacrifices to atone for their sin. We have something far greater, the once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus Christ. We don't need to keep doing it. It's done in Him. In Christianity, we have faith towards God, but we're not looking to Abraham. We're looking to the person and work of Jesus Christ. In Christianity, we have the the laying on of hands, but there's an aspect now where we're trusting in the power of the Holy Spirit, where we see the laying on of hands is associated with the move of the Holy Spirit in the lives of those who want a commission to go out. In Christianity, we definitely have the resurrection from the dead, and it's the most significant foundational truth of what we believe. So we celebrate every Easter, not just random resurrection but the resurrection of Jesus Christ himself. In Christianity, we also could say we have this doctrine of washings because really the doctrine of washings in Judaism is all about cleansing themselves from defilement. And so they would do all these washings because they didn't want to be defiled before the Lord. You know what? We are defiled before the Lord until we come to Jesus Christ who washes us. Though our sins were like scarlet, He has made them white as snow. And so we have that reality of we are washed clean by the blood of Christ. Now remember, the Jewish believers were being persecuted for following Jesus. And so they're being tempted to revert back to, listen to this, an inoffensive middle ground. Because that's what this list is. The Jews who are persecuting them, they're not going to persecute this stuff. They teach repentance from dead works. They teach laying on of hands. They teach ceremonial washings. They teach uh, resurrection. They teach eternal judgment. They teach this stuff. They're not going to persecute you if you go back to the inoffensive middle ground. And I believe that is the temptation that these Jewish believers were falling to. You know what? If we just go back to this stuff, we're not going to get persecuted anymore. But here's the problem with that. When you do that, you go to this safe, inoffensive middle ground. You might be thinking, well, who cares? Those things are still Christian. The problem is, there's something very important that's not in that common ground. Something very distinctly Christian. And that's the cross. The sacrifice of Jesus for our sin. That lies outside this common ground. So if you were to say, you know what, uh, not to offend anyone, I'm going to retreat back to the common ground. What you have done is you say, yeah, I'll hold on to something that's similarly Christian, but I'm going to have to abandon those things that are distinctly Christian. The most important things of Christianity, the cross, Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus foundational truth that Jesus and Jesus alone is what saves me. I have to deny the most important part of Christianity, the person and work of Jesus Christ. So the third thing the author tells these Hebrew believers to do is don't lay again the inoffensive middle ground foundation of Judaism and Christianity to avoid persecution. Don't leave the things that are distinctly Christian in order to go back to these inoffensive middle ground areas. And I believe that challenge is so important for us today as well. Because we got the same problem in the church world today. We got the same issues. We say, you know what, I want to go to middle ground issues. Why? So I don't have to suffer persecution from the culture that we live in. And so, you know what, we can change our circles because our circles aren't Christianity and Judaism. We didn't come out of Judaism. At least most of us didn't. And that's not our issue. So we'd have to replace that second circle with modern culture. We got Christianity and we got modern culture. And you know what? There's a lot more overlap between Christianity and Judaism, but there's a little bit of overlap in some ways between Christianity and the modern culture. And I'll give you some examples. Our culture would say, hey, we should love one another. Christianity definitely says the same thing. Our culture would say we should help one another. We should take care of those who are poor and and those who are disadvantaged. And and Christianity says the same things. So there's definitely a, a little bit of overlap between the Christian culture and the modern culture. But the problem is, if I live my Christian existence in that safe, inoffensive middle ground so I don't offend the culture, 
I have lost my distinctive Christianness. You see, in order not to defend the culture, you're going to have to abandon the cross, which is outside of that middle ground. You're going to have to abandon the majority of the Word of God, which is outside of that middle ground as well. So the third thing that we need to do if we want to spiritually mature is we need to move to, don't move to an inoffensive middle ground between Christianity and our modern culture to avoid persecution. And you know, there's a big temptation to do that. No one likes to be ridiculed. No one likes persecution. No one likes to have to have the suffering that comes through that. And so there's a temptation to say, you know what, if I can just talk about and and hold on to the things that I know the culture likes that's also Christian, and kind of just not talk about those things that I know are offensive to them, let's just do that, and then I don't have to worry about being persecuted. You know, I think this happens a lot with Christian college students. They go off to college with no realization of just how anti-Christian most of these colleges are. Just how anti-Christian most of these professors are. And they come to a place where not only are the professors ridiculing their beliefs, trying to undermine what they believe, but almost all of their peers completely disagree with Christianity. And don't just think, hey, it's, it's foolish or you're ignorant if you believe it. No, you are immoral. Oh, it's full of hate speech. You, know, you buy into this Christian stuff. You know, they label you as someone who's just despicable. And statistics show that so many people who are professing believers going into college come out having completely abandoned their faith. And it's a scary reality. And I think part of the problem is they get to this place where they say, you know what? I'm just going to go to the safe middle ground. I know I can't talk about sexuality. I know I can't talk about the cross. I mean, if I just told people, well, Christianity means love everybody. They'd be like, oh, yeah, that's right. Love everybody. This is great. Everybody love them. If I say Christianity means you got to repent of your sin. you got to turn to Jesus. you got to make him your Lord and master. He's the only way to be forgiven. All of a sudden, then it's no longer claps and applauses. How dare you make that claim? How dare you say that? You're so intolerant. Who are you to make those claims? But that's what the gospel teaches. That's what the Word of God says. And so people say, you know, I'm going to get away from the inoffensive And I'm just going to stay in this little middle ground where I can talk about some nice things about Christianity and not ruffle any feathers and no one's going to get upset with me and no one's going to persecute me. You know, not too long ago, a pastor of a large church goes on the view of all places to go. But, you know, they ask him about his view on homosexuality where he says, oh, no, there's no problem with it. They ask him his view on abortion. Oh, it's okay. And it's like, here's an opportunity to talk. And Joy Behar, if you ever watched that show, it's probably about as anti-Christian as you can think. She says, that's a church I could go to. Well, if you say that, you know that's not a church you want to go to. But the reality was she's saying, you know what? A church that doesn't hold to any of the things that Christianity holds to, I'd be happy to join that one. But this guy was just saying, you know what? Yeah, I'll just stay in the safe middle ground. Just love everybody. You know, nothing's sinful. Nothing's wrong. Nothing's problematic. And it'll all be great. And it shouldn't surprise you that same pastor about a month ago you know, was caught in a very long adulterous affair and is no longer in the pastoral role. And that kind of happens. You know, when you live life in the middle ground, guess where you ultimately end up? In the culture. You, you don't stay there. You know, the culture just sucks you into where they are. And I think a lot of these people who are going to college, they, they, go, they go to that middle ground, and by the time they're done, they're sucked completely into the culture and the way that they think and their ideology and their priorities we got to be very careful. You know, it destroys so many things when we do that. It destroys our witness. You know, no one really even takes Christianity seriously anymore. It's like, well, if you're just like us, then what's different about it? It destroys your relationship with God. It destroys your spiritual growth. And that is a price that is just far too high to pay. We should never let go of the distinctive truths of Christianity, no matter how much the culture despises them, no matter how much they mock them, no matter how much they come against us and persecute us and call us all sorts of things. We hold to these things because they are true, and we should never abandon them no matter what comes our way. You know, I think we need to recognize that we're shifting in our country, and it's a shift that is not good for us as a church. You know, just within the lockdown, what did we see? 
the church is not essential. I mean, that, that's what a lot of the people in government feel. The church is not essential. Just keep it shut down. There's no reason to have it open. And then they're making laws and things to just try to have that happen. But you know what? In this new presidential administration, if you've been following the appointees and you see anything about their records, there are many people who have been appointed into very significant uh, positions who have a record of attacking and targeting and trying to destroy religious freedom trying to push a secular agenda on churches, on uh, private Christian schools. And so I'm convinced that the next four years, we're going to see a shift, even more so than we do, where there is a greater persecution. There is more that's going to come from our own culture against what we hold and what we believe. And there is going to be a temptation when that happens to say, you know what, let's just go to the middle ground. You know, let's just stay here so that we don't have to suffer all the things that come instead of saying, no, we're going to stand boldly in these distinctive truths that offend you. Because we know the Word of God tells us, yeah, the cross is offensive to those who are perishing. Man, but to those who are being saved, it's eternal life. And we're going to hold to those things recognizing when I abandon that, it doesn't just hurt me. It doesn't just hurt my relationship with God. It hurts the culture because I'm no longer willing to share the one message that they desperately need in order to become a believer and saved from their sins. It's hard. It's hard to go completely after Jesus in our culture. I would say in any culture in our world today. But it's worth it. But you need to understand, you're going to pay a price. You know, oftentimes, you know, you know, people will just say, oh, you follow Jesus, life will be so great, there'll be no problems. That's not true. And especially when a culture is starting to not accept Christianity, there's a price. There's a price of persecution. But it's worth it. Because you know what? There's also a price that people don't want to talk about if you decide to stay in the middle ground. There's a price for not standing for distinctive truth. There's a price for abandoning that. And that price is far greater. It's far greater to your own relationship with God, to your own spiritual development, but it's far greater to the culture who is in desperate need of the church to take the great commission to go into all the world and preach the gospel seriously. And if we're scared of what's going to be said of us, man, we're not going to make much of an impact. Now, verse 3, I think, gives us a, a really practical, important thing that we need to look at, and we'll close with this. And this we will do if God permits. This isn't saying God might permit some people to do it and might not permit some others. Like, ah, he might let you, but he's probably not going to. No, that's not what it's talking about. This is saying the only way we can do this is if God is permitting us, speaking of the fact that don't look to yourself. It's not through your power. It's not through your efforts. Even as I said, go on to maturity. I'm not talking about going on in your own strength. You've got to look to God. You've got to look to his power. You've got to look to the power of the Spirit of God. He gives you everything you need to do this. But he is the only way you can do this. And so if you're sitting back thinking, man, I recognize, I relate greatly to these Hebrew believers. I am in a place of spiritual immaturity. I want to grow to maturity. I've tried in myself so many times and I keep failing. The first thing I would say is quit trying in yourself. You don't have what it takes to do it. Trust the Lord and his power and strength. And as you do that, recognize, put these three things into practice. Do these things. Move beyond the discussion of the basic foundational principles and go to deeper things. Surround yourself with mature Christians. Let them invest in you, help you grow. Second, put your effort into moving forward towards spiritual maturity. Like, really make a choice. I'm going to do this. Like, if I would say, hey, I'm going to get in shape, and I'm going to exercise, I'm going to make a choice to, to put that work in, to put that time in. You know, exercise yourself to godliness, as the Bible says. Put the effort and time into the things that are going to help you grow. And third, don't move to this inoffensive middle ground. Don't fall into that temptation. Stay with the distinctive truths of Jesus and the cross and the word of God and what sin is, how God defines it, not how the culture defines it. Stand for biblical truth no matter what comes your way. Let's pray.